We continue in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. Last week, you will recall, we came to the end of chapter 25, in which the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples about the judgment of the nations. The judgment at the end of time. And Christ himself will judge the living and the dead. Now, if we were following the order this morning, we would look at the anointing of Jesus at Bethany by the woman who broke the alabaster flask and poured the ointment on Jesus' head. Then follows this Passover and institution of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at the anointing of Bethany tonight in the evening service, and we're going on and reading this section about the Passover and institution of the supper this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have commanded your church to live in and out of your word, to live out of the fullness of what you have revealed about yourself, not to make up our own thoughts of who you are or who we are or what we want to do in life. Jesus is the Lord, period. And so, Father, may we have hearts that are submissive to your word, bring deep conviction into our lives, wherein we are failing to submit our minds, our hearts, our lives to what your word clearly teaches. Bring to us great joy as believers in Jesus as we recognize that our sins are forgiven through Jesus' shed blood, And Father, we ask that those who may be with us today who are lost and do not know Christ would be drawn by the Spirit of the Lord to put their trust in Him. Bless, we pray, your sovereign word through the sovereign operations of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 and following. This is the word... Of God. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The truth of this text should be viewed very intimately by Christians. There are many themes here. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, atonement, covenant, communion, Christ's return, but all in the context of Christ's growing isolation as he moves alone, all alone, to the cross. The passage should be, for us, very moving. We should be very passionate about what we read here. Bring your hearts to it, people of God. Bring your mind, bring your heart, bring your soul to this passage. Be warm and earnest. May this be a living meeting with God as the Spirit of God blesses the text to our hearts. Think deeply and quietly with me about the significance of this text. It is Thursday, mid-afternoon, 14 Nisan. One lamb per household was brought to the temple court, and the priest sacrificed them. The blood was passed along in basins from priest to priest and poured at the foot of the altar. They then burned the lamb's fat on the altar of burnt offering while singing Psalms 113 to 118. After sunset, the households gathered to eat their Passover meal, the Passover roasted with bitter herbs. The head of the house would pray over the first of four cups. Vegetables and bitter herbs would be eaten, and the boy would ask the meaning of all this. The meal went forward with three other cups and concluded with the singing of psalms, and extensive preparations were made for the celebration of the Passover. And so where will Jesus and his disciples celebrate together the Passover? Well, the first thing we see in this text is a providential preparation, a providential preparation. The countdown to Calvary has begun. The Passover theme permeates this passage not only because it is the season of Passover, but because Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. So where will the disciples celebrate? Unusual preparations are being made. In verses 18 and 19, we read, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Very obviously, the Lord had been at work in advance. We see that particularly as we compare this passage with other passages in the Gospels. God is at work providentially to prepare for the celebration of the Passover. These were God-ordered events, not an accident. There is no accident in God's economy. Nothing haphazard about Jesus' sacrifice here, nothing haphazard about the cross. Do not forget that the sufferings of Christ for our sins were foreordained of the Lord from eternity past planned from all eternity, that Christ, our mediator, was set up from everlasting to be the Savior of his people, and infinite wisdom brought Jesus to the cross. God exists, God wills, God plans 
These are the basic components of theology. God has one single indivisible plan and infinite wisdom will bring you home as he has promised. We are learning to read all providences in light of this special providence of the cross. God, unlimited in power and wisdom and love, can do no wrong. Infinite wisdom brought Jesus to the cross. That same infinite wisdom that planned the event of the Passover for Jesus and his disciples, that was leading him step by step to the sacrifice of himself for our sins on the cross, is the same providence, the same God of providence, who has promised to save his people and to take you all the way home to the end. It is all planned. It is all purposed. And God had you in mind from eternity past. People of God, as you take the supper of the Lord and dwell upon the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins this morning, have this thought in your mind. There has never been a time in which God did not love me. There has never been a time in which God did not plan my redemption through Jesus. There has never been a time in which God did not purpose to save his people through the shed blood of Christ. And what we see in these two verses is just but a snippet of the promise that God plans, purposes, guides, directs, and fulfills his purpose of salvation for his people. The second thing we see is an awful prediction, an awful prediction. Verses 20 through 23. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me is an allusion to Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This psalm that teaches that the righteous will suffer unjustly and yet will be vindicated in the end. Is it I, Lord, the disciples ask? It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now it's important for us to see, before we think about Judas for a few moments, it's important for us to see that Judas represents the apostles as a whole at this point. They will collapse one by one as Jesus is tried and crucified. In their weakness, they will collapse. Each is weak. Each said, is it I, Lord, Each has been dipping into the food with Jesus. They are not with the woman who broke the jar. They still do not see their radical need of mercy. What about you? Do you understand that apart from the sovereign grace of God, you would be lost forever? That you and I would be with Judas? That in our sinful weakness, we too have and indeed would betray him? That morality will do nothing to save us? That putting ourselves forward and thinking our own goodness can save us is like sweeping the waves of the Atlantic back with a broomstick. You need grace, sovereign and free. But what of this man Judas in this passage? What do we learn from this narrative relative to Judas? 
Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. We learn two things from Judas. First of all, we learn something of the deceptive power of sin. In Judas, see how sin hardens and how sin deceives. And the hardening and deception of sin did not come all at once for Judas, but worked gradually over time. The true Christian is secure in Christ, but God uses means to keep us secure and to sustain us. And one of those means is warning. And one of those means is warning against the deceptive power of sin. Listen to the words of that faithful man, J.C. Ryle. One point only remains to be considered on the subject of sin, he writes in an article on sin, which I dare not pass over. That point is sin's deceitfulness. It is a point of most serious importance, and I venture to think it does not receive the attention which it deserves. You may see this deceitfulness in the wonderful proneness of men to regard sin as less sinful and dangerous than it really is in the sight of God, and in their readiness to extenuate it, make excuses for it, and minimize its guilt. It is but a little sin. God is merciful. God is not extreme to mark what is done amiss. We mean well. One cannot be so particular. Where is the mighty harm? We only do as others. Who is not familiar with this kind of language? You may see it in the long string of smooth words and phrases which men have coined in order to designate things which God calls downright wicked and ruinous to the soul. What do such expressions as fast, gay, wild, unsteady, thoughtless, loose mean? They show that men try to cheat themselves into the belief that sin is not quite so sinful as God says it is, and that they are not so bad as they really are. You may see it in the tendency even of believers to indulge their children in questionable practices and to blind their own eyes to the inevitable result of the love of money, of tampering with temptation, and sanctioning a low standard of family religion. I fear we do not sufficiently realize the extreme subtlety of our soul's disease. We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I'm your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, and like Joab with an outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, Yet it cast her out of Eden. The walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems sin at first beginnings. Let us then watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation. We may give wickedness smooth names, but we cannot alter its nature and character in the sight of God. Let us remember St. Paul's words, exhort one another daily, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It is a wise prayer in our litany. From the deceits of the world, the flesh and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. We learn, first of all, the deceitfulness of sin as we look at Judas. 
how progressively it eats the soul. If we differ from Judas, it is in the grace that has been given to us to see our sin and to return to the Lord, all of grace. As Proverbs 24, 16 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. But to tell a man that he's born again who lives consistently in carelessness is a delusion. Christian, live in the acknowledgement of your personal vulnerability apart from the grace of God. The second thing we learn from Judas is something about God's sovereignty and divine responsibility. We read in verse 24, Jesus saying, the Son of Man, referencing himself, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That is to say, it is foretold in the scriptures. God purposed it, God planned that I go to the cross. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here we have God's sovereign decree bringing Jesus to the cross, and we have Judas' personal responsibility in his own sin. No one will be able to say at the judgment, I'm not responsible for my sin because you're sovereign. God has never compelled anyone to sin. He hates sin, and sinners sin willingly. C.E.B. Cranfield rightly says, The fact that God turns the wrath of man to his praise does not excuse the wrath of man. Christians find great comfort here. We do not pretend to understand God's mind and how his good decree for salvation makes use of the sin of man to accomplish it, but it does. And the cross is our great paradigm here. The cross is no accident. It was purposed and planned by God. It was purposed and planned that wicked men would send him to a cross, and yet wicked men are fully responsible for their own sinful deed of nailing the Lord of glory to the tree. The cross is our paradigm. God is not the author of sin. God hates sin. He infuses no sin into man And yet that which is done against God's will is not done without God's will. Was it decreed that Jesus be put to death by wicked men? Yes. Did they nail him to the tree freely? Yes. Is God sovereign in this? Yes. Are wicked men responsible for their own sin? Yes. Is this true? God's sovereignty? Human responsibility? Yes. Is it a mystery? Yes. And I call upon you, people of God, not to allow yourselves to be impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Either God is sovereign, man is not responsible, or man is responsible, God is not sovereign. The Bible never knows tension between these truths, but teaches These things are ultimately resolvable in the mind of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Ultimately resolvable in the mind of God, but both of these things are God's truth revealed in his word. And God's people take great comfort from this because nothing is outside of the sovereignty of our good God. Nothing. Not pain, not sickness, not illness, not those persecutions that come to the church, not those sinful arrows that wicked men will shoot at the ministers of the gospel, 
not those hardships that you endure. Jesus, the mediator, listen, Jesus, your mediator, is on his throne, sovereignly administering all providence for the purpose of saving his people from their sins and bringing us home. Jesus, the mediator, is administering all providence for the purpose of his own saving work in this world. And that we can learn from this interchange between Jesus the Lord and Judas the betrayer. But now we move from a providential preparation and an awful prediction to a third thing, a blessed provision, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus uses the Passover meal and shows its full meaning and interprets his death and points to our future as believers in Jesus. There are too many Old Testament allusions to mention them all in one sermon, but we have Jesus sitting at the head of the table as the Father would at the Passover. He is the one who administers the table. He took his place as the head of the new family, the new family of God, and he interprets the feast. The feast of Passover was developed around four cups of wine and various foods, including the bitter herbs. And then the youngest would say, why do we eat these foods on this night? And the father, in this case, Jesus, would recount the Exodus and they would sing Psalms 113 to 115. Now there was that first cup, not mentioned in the text. But there is the second of the four cups that was taken with the unleavened bread in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. This is where the second cup would be taken with the unleavened bread. This is my body, not locally present. This is my body is not literal, but should be linked to the Passover. Just as the bread of the Passover has just been broken, so also Jesus' body will be broken. Just as the people of Israel associated their redemption from Egyptian bondage with the Passover, so we associate our redemption with the, the commemorative meal in which we fellowship with the triune God by faith. Cup of blessing, the third cup is referenced in verses 27 and 28. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. An allusion to Jeremiah chapter 31, in which God promises, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. God's promise to you, his covenant people, that he will have divine amnesia regarding your sins, remembering your sins no more because your sins are under the value of Jesus' blood. The institution of the new covenant is here. 
And just as the old covenant was ratified by the the sprinkling of blood, so the new covenant is instituted and ratified by the shedding of Jesus' blood. Palmer Robertson very rightly and correctly defines the covenant of grace as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Blood and covenant are inseparably related to one another. Jesus understands the cross he is soon to endure as the ratification of the covenant of grace, the relationship of salvation that he has with his people. Jeremiah 31 promised the new covenant that Jesus' blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins fulfills the prophecy and promise of Jeremiah 31 that he must substitute himself for sinners and bear the wrath of God as the suffering servant of Jehovah given, as Isaiah tells us, as a covenant for the people. My friends, Jesus in this supper is unpacking for us the significance of his death. Jesus in this supper is unveiling for us the meaning of his sacrifice for our sins. Remove this and its accompanying doctrine of justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ, and you have ripped out the heart of the gospel. And it's an amazing thing to me to see in the church of Jesus Christ today, evangelical churches now denying the substitutionary penal death of Jesus and denying the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account that is the result of his penal substitution in our place, bearing our wrath and our condemnation. We have forgotten what the Bible teaches. We have forgotten what was won in the Protestant Reformation, the recovery of these truths. And so when we eat this bread and drink this cup, This binds us to the redemptive work of God throughout history, all the way back to the people of God in the Exodus and before. Paul tells us to live out of the fullness of our understanding of this. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let the fact of the sacrifice of Christ, that he is our Passover lamb, control how you live and love one another. By the way, just a passing remark, that there are three liturgical actions associated with the bread and the cup in this passage. There's fracture, the breaking of the bread. There's the taking and eating of the bread and the taking and eating of the cup distinctly and separately. And that is why, among other reasons, there are others, that we do not do intinction, dipping the bread in the wine. Because it eliminates the distinct liturgical actions associated with the bread and the cup. Pastor, why do you even mention that this morning? Well, because it's become an issue in our denomination. But then there's a fourth cup at the Passover. A fourth cup. The cup of consummation. And there's an opaque reference to it in verse 29. 
When Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here is that final fourth cup of wine sitting on the table. And Jesus says, that cup, that cup I will not drink. That cup, that cup I will not take into my hands and take to my lips. No, 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 I will not take that cup. It just sits on the table untouched. That one Jesus will not drink. Not yet. In the eternal age of the consummated kingdom, he says, I will drink it. I will drink it then, and I will drink it with you, people of God. This banquet was predicted in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 and following. That final consummation when Jesus will drink that cup with us is predicted in Isaiah 25. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of, of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." And of that feast in which Jesus will drink with us on that day, we also read in Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 6. When looking to the future, he says to us, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when Jesus will drink the cup of consummation with his people. Now, when you on a Wednesday night in Vespers come to the Supper of the Lord or on this first Sunday of the month, take this cup of blessing to your lips and drink. I want you to remember two things. The first thing to remember is that I can take this cup of blessing, anticipating this great day that is to come, Looking back, fellowshipping with him now, anticipating what is to come. I can take this cup of blessing to my lips now because Jesus drank to the bitter dregs my cup of wrath and condemnation against my sin. If you truly drink in faith, that's the only way in which you can drink. Because Jesus bore your wrath and took your condemnation. 
I've always admired the way that Samuel Rutherford, the great Scots divine, spoke of the Supper of the Lord as a feast. And he says this to us, Look to the Supper and you will find it very expensive to Christ. For the fire that made it ready was the wrath of God, and the fuel and the wood for fire was Christ and a great burden of the sins of the elect on his back. And if Jesus had not been green timber, he had been burnt all to ashes. Christ was first boiled in his own blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he was roasted and burnt on the cross and carved all to pieces with nails, spears, and buffetings to make him God's bread for the mouth and stomach of believers. And the sourest sauce in this supper to Christ was his dear father hiding himself. And when all is done, you cannot do him a worse turn than not to eat heartily. Now, for the Lord's sake, beloved, please the goodman of the house and eat and welcome. Whereby Rutherford does not simply meet, mean eat the bread and drink this cup. He means feast on Christ by faith. And then remember also this. Remember that this communion service is an unfinished meal. That we proclaim the coming age when we will drink with Jesus in the consummated kingdom. It is coming. Jesus will return for his people. My God, and is thy table spread, and does thy cup with love o'erflow, thither be all thy children led, and let them all thy sweetness know. Hail, sacred feast, which Jesus makes, rich banquet of his flesh and blood. Thrice happy he who here partakes that sacred stream, that heavenly food. Let crowds approach with hearts prepared, with hearts inflamed, let all attend. Nor when we leave our Father's board, the pleasure or the profit end. Oh, let thy table honored be and furnished well with joyful guests. And may each soul salvation see that here its sacred pledges tastes. These beautiful words of Philip Doddridge remind us that table fellowship with Jesus is an anticipation of the final consummation. Yes, that is true. But even now we sit together at our Father's table and feast on Christ by faith, just as we do through the word that is preached. And so daily draw on this fullness, people of God. Do not be at a standstill. Believers who seem to be at a standstill are usually neglecting their communion of the heart with God and are going backwards because of the heartfelt neglect of the means that God has appointed for your growth in grace. Don't go back. Don't say there's one area of my life I keep to myself. Remember, Christ is Lord Period. Bring it all. Submit it all. Feast on Christ by faith and make progress. Come, eat, drink, and draw life from Christ by faith. This is the solid comfort that the world cannot, cannot take away. Press forward in your Christian living, people. And then in verse 30, they sang a hymn. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Now those would have been psalms, probably from Psalm 116 to 118, all or some of those psalms. Those were the traditional hymns that were sung at the end of the Passover feast. And just before the supper, we also will sing a hymn. Why? Why will we also sing a hymn? Because we have something about which to sing. And God's people said, 